But that's something that I think is interesting too, the outsider spotting it, because yeah. sometimes it takes an outsider to spot a problem, diagnosis, and break open a problem, but it takes an insider to solve the problem. Right. And ideally, you have both of these things working in concert. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Nick McDonald, who is the author of 11 books which began with the book 12 when he was 12 years old, or almost. He was 18 at the time. And by the time his second book came out in 2005, New York Magazine had a headline that said, The Charmed Life of a 21-Year-Old Best-Selling Author. Don't hate him because he's young, good-looking, privileged, impeccably connected, and about to publish his second novel. So how connected was he? Well, his first book at 18 was published by his godfather, who was the head of Grove. His dad was Terry McDonald, who was executive editor at Newsweek, Rolling Stone, Sports Illustrated. He co-founded Literary Hub. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of scaffolding there to assist his career that I think pissed off a lot of us who were... Um, sending stuff to slush piles because we didn't know anybody in New York. And yet this guy went on to write 11 books now. Now, um, he's also done a lot of tremendous reporting um, about military conflict around the world. And most recently, his new book that just came out is called Quiet Street, which is an investigation into that privilege that pissed us so many of us off at the time we were learning about it. And it's a really interesting, incisive book. I, I couldn't help when I first read the description of it thinking what a minefield for anybody to embark on. And the reviews attacked him when he was transparent for how much money he got paid to do it, that he was paid $1,500 a page, just about. Um, to monetize his guilt was what one of the reviews said. But he's got a lot of positive feedback for this. Washington Post called it an elegant confessional of the excesses of the ruling class. Um, there is a, a kind of feeling of Virgil taking you down into the layers of hell, a certain kind of hell. And at the same time, that hell, in terms of growing up with... Um, comforts and amenities that one would expect from the 1% and above, um, a lot of those privileges, some reviewers pointed out, should just be rights that all kids enjoy in school. And I, I really liked the reflectiveness of it. I went into it thinking, how could I not sort of loathe this entire process of exploration? And... Um, just like how hard he's worked from when he first got in the door at 18. Um, there's complexity and there's a lot of nuance. And we met down in the Lower East Side in a park. And so it's um, an outdoor interview. Um, I tried to sit in a quiet corner and a couple of women sat directly across from us who were having a very good time laughing their heads off. So we moved after a little bit. So this is one of those weird outdoor interviews, but it was fun just to um, delve into this guy's work and life because for a long time, it felt to me anyway, following him, um, that people were talking more about him than any of the work. And 
So this was an interesting choice to make it at this stage of his career and his life. And it would be kind of interesting if he did it again in 10 years or 20 years, because there somebody called him uh, sort of like a socioeconomic, like, is he a double agent or a triple agent? And you, th you think about it a lot um, with the choices that he made here. And it's useful to evaluate your own privilege in, in various ways, too, through the lens of somebody where it's much more extreme. So anyway, long preamble. Guest this week is Nick McDonald, this week's guest on Tourist Information. So I guess I just wanted to start initially with just, I mean, the origin of the book in terms of how it entered your mind to investigate this. Because when I first heard about you, I was reading more reviews about you as a person than even the book that you were publishing, which is an unusual phenomenon in publishing. Or at least it felt that way. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks again for having me. Oh, pleasure. The origin of the book there's the, the short origin and the long origin. The long origin was that when I first started writing 20 years ago, I wrote a book about the Upper East Side and privilege. And from that time as a teenager all the way to now, I've thought about privilege, race, where I grew up, how I fit in, and had kind of addressed it in different ways, but had gone off and done a different kind of work, focused on other parts of the world to report on, other problems. That's sort of the long origin. The short origin is that in the spring of 2020, I was volunteering at the Brooklyn Hospital Center. And I had had this idea for a while that I wanted to do a kind of practitioner's memoir as a EMT or somewhere in the medical profession, because I'd done a little bit of reporting about disaster medical relief. And uh, I, I signed up for the New York Medical Reserve Corps that mm -hmm. the governor had gone on TV to ask people to do. Uh, and then I was contacted by the city by email and said, okay, we'd like it if you'd volunteer, here's where you can go. Mm. And they, when I got on the phone with the person originally, they said, can you go to Elmhurst? And I was like, oof, because it was the harshest hit hospital. And I was close to another one, the Brooklyn Hospital Center. So I said, oh, I'll go to this one actually, that'd be okay. And they said, sure. So I went and I kind of tell this story in the book, so I don't mean to be repeating it to no, you. No, no, please there. do though, for people yeah. who haven't read it yet. So I, I got there and I was checking in, but I was the least qualified EMT maybe in New York City. I had just gotten qualified. I had 12 hours of clinical experience, basically nothing. So I explained this to the woman and she said, well, maybe where we really could use you is the morgue. So I ended up working in the morgue with some people, moving bodies, and it was a lot. There was a lot of, it was the height of the pandemic. And then, I was thinking as I was doing this, well, this is great. I'm getting embedded in this community. I'm doing this kind of work. I'm at the bottom of the chain. I'll work my way up. I'll learn about healthcare. Uh, but then it was also the summer of George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter protests and the country sort of erupting into this discourse. And so as I was thinking about doing this writing, I was in this community of black and Latino people. And I'm from the 1% from the Upper East Side. And I was you know, an outsider. And in the context of this discussion that was happening nationally, I was thinking, okay, well, what does it mean for me as an outsider to be reporting on this community? And I thought to really do this properly, and I had kind of learned this reporting in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'd have to be in this community for a long time, really try to become part of it. 
Uh, and at that moment, at that time, I thought this would take years and I wasn't ready to commit to do years in that community right now. And I thought, especially given what is going on in publicly, maybe I should think about the community that I came from in a concentrated way. And that was the short origin of how the book started. And so I decided to stop doing that hospital work for a second and really think, try to think about the community that I had come from, which was the 1% on the Upper East Side. And that was how it started, this particular book. And yet you also point out that you, while coming from that, your, your family is not old money. Which I think is interesting because I was talking to my wife about your book on several different levels. And as we're thinking about a place to move out of New York to Connecticut, I am inclined toward Westport because the Paul Newman connection. She's like, no, it's new money. It's awful. We should go to, go to Greenwich or something mm -hmm. where it's old money is just going to be a much better atmosphere to be around. And I started thinking about that concept of new money people versus old money people and this exclusionary attitude that new money people have that are all elbows. So I talked to another friend of mine who lived in the South Bronx who went to Yale mm -hmm. and he's Dominican. And I said, what was your, were you made to feel like an outsider here? Like you didn't belong, like athletics played a role or race played a role. And he said, only by new money. Mm -hmm. Old money people, they were the best people I ever dealt with. Mm. So I just wondered how much that informed it, and informs your experience and maybe your family dynamic. I'm sure it informs it. There are gradations within this community. Sure. And and I think that the, the people in this community who have been in the 1%, the longest, the oldest, waspiest, blue-bloodest, multi-generational stuff, there is this kind of ease, there's a certainty and a security that allows them, particularly interpersonally, to be very generous to people. And the, the book is not about how people are not welcoming on an interpersonal level. No, no, no. It's the opposite. Right. They really embrace a very limited amount of the outside world, but in some ways that uh, sort of confirms that everything is going, everything is uh, it suggests a greater porousness than exists. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. I remember, remember seeing this phenomenon of this boxing trainer for Wall Street traders that got a huge amount of attention from people. I don't know if you re remember this. I think this is like 2011, 2012. I think it was 2013. But he was an African-American guy training white-collar people. Mm -hmm. And the entire thing looked like the dynamic of a dominatrix, just saying how worthless these people were. Mm -hmm. And they loved it. Mm -hmm. They delighted in it. And mm -hmm. I thought, is there another example that I can think of in upstairs, downstairs, Manhattan especially, where that's true? Mm -hmm. Other than a dominatrix or a boxing trainer, who else, what doorman could say to somebody in the penthouse, you're a worthless piece of shit, or whatever is the equivalent. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand what was going on to allow for it. And all the people that I interviewed that he trained just said, he's the only person who's honest to me in my entire life. Mm. Like, it, or a variation of that. Mm -hmm. Like, it, mm. the, the quotes were incredible. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I suppose in both a trainer and a dominatrix, that's what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but why in such a parochial way? Why do, like, why? Well, like, like, 
you've, you've traveled all over the world. You've reported all over the world these incredible conflicts. But, but one aspect of your story that I found intriguing in, in the book, not your personal story, is you mentioning how rarely you've been to the Bronx mm -hmm. and how often you've been to these locations that most people would desperately do anything to avoid. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what is it about people who do the things that you do? Ben Anderson is somebody I interview on the podcast. I know you're friends with mm -hmm. him. Um, I asked him, like, it's not as if there aren't worthy causes to investigate where you grew up, coal miners and, and who your relatives are even. Why do you need to go to Afghanistan or Iraq or all of these intense conflicts? Like, what is it about that? I think that, that is an important question. It's one I've thought about it for a bit. And it has to do, for me at least, with growing up where I, where I did and in this community. I... I had some idea that I was interested in injustice, but I had no acquaintance with anything outside of the Upper East Side, really. The fortress, so, you call it. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, and there was, I, I was very much insulated from the Bronx, even though it was very close. Uh, but I also had this idea that I wanted some kind of uh, adventure, which among like privileged white boys is like not an uncommon thing sure. to want to go out and do that. So, it, it seemed romantic and it seemed exciting and it seemed high status to go and be this foreign correspondent and all of that was very attractive. And it was only later in retrospect that I started thinking about you know, how important proximity is to any sense of community justice like that. But then I did start thinking about that as time went by, but I also came to appreciate how in this country and in the state system as it exists today, there is also a need for understanding Inter, you know, international relations and foreign, foreign conflicts because those do have relevance to the way this sure. country is run too. So it's been a loop in sort of way back because for a while I thought, oh, you know, and part of this book was I thought I really should be focusing on what's happening here and this is my place and I have to think about that. And part of the thing about doing this book was that it it reminded me that that those foreign things are an important part of this as well and at this point this is who I am and who I've become and it's what I care about and know about so the book has kind of made my beat more concise in that it, you know the focus on American power here in New York I try to think about that in these places that I'm in too so it's kind of the same the way I think about it now even though they're in radically different places do you think do you think <clears throat> you were talking about leaning into the your subjective experience, which I've heard from many people outside of journalism. Why is there so much first person stuff in journalism? And I'm saying, well, because you're not really allowed to write about other people so much, that would, which is many legitimate reasons for that. But I wonder what value you think there is. What would this book be if an outsider, some spy mm -hmm. was getting into your school? Like I asked my wife while she was at Tufts, how many people did you know that didn't have student loans or weren't uh, weren't on scholarship and she said i had never met somebody like that mm -hmm. so everybody didn't have mm -hmm. student loans or or was on a scholarship she was the only person she knew that actually had to pay herself her student loans mm -hmm. while she was there for four years mm -hmm. and i thought that is a very strange kind of uh, illumination of of the socioeconomic dynamics piles of volunteers but I thought even even in our industry when I started little like 
you, you, your natural start was to get an unpaid internship mm -hmm. at a magazine. Well, who can afford to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was the same thing working in Iraq and Afghanistan on the sort of human rights and civilian casualty stuff that I was doing. People who investigate that, though the people who die in these wars tend to be people of the working class, the people who investigate the crimes because of how poorly those jobs, poorly, quote unquote, those jobs are paid, tend to be people from the middle, upper middle, and upper class. Right. Yeah, it's a... I just wonder, just do you see value in subjectively exploring your own, being your own canary in the coal mine for the 1%? Or could an outsider see things that you wouldn't that could be valuable? I think I would absolutely see things that I wouldn't. I think that the value in this is that it is uh, kind of an ethnography, an right. auto, auto ethnography. I've heard that phrase used to kind of anthropology. And I'm trying to, as a reporter in other places, I try to convey as accurately as possible the things I see. And I try to do that with my own experience right. here, partly because I had access to this world in a way that not that many reporters have access to. So I thought this is a good use of this tool that has become my job. Do you see in some respects that with, I mean, I want to get to a summary of your book before we get uh -huh. into it more, but I wondered, like, as I was talking to that friend of mine who was at Yale, where I mean, Clarence Thomas is the, the best example I can think of where the chip on his shoulder about not, never feeling as if he belonged because of affirmative action seemed to, seems to permeate his attitude toward affirmative action now dominantly in a way that makes him antagonistic to it. But I wonder, did you ever feel in some sense with your connections, like your godfather is the head of Grove, your, your parents are connected so extensively that there are headlines and articles about you saying, you want to hate this guy. Mm. Like literally headlines saying that because of your connections and physicality and stuff like that. Um, did you did you have your own version of an imposter syndrome? Well, uh, it was kind of backwards to me I, because I... I read actually not long ago a piece that was written about me a long time ago when I was 22 for my second second book and the headline was what you described and at the end of the piece I said and I she's a great reporter Arielle Levy and has written great reporting and posts and so on and, and she quotes me at the end of the piece saying something like I just want to get a shot I just want people to take me seriously on my own merits and not pay attention to me. which is this funhouse mirror version of the reality because most people want a shot but don't get the shot I want a shot, but I had the shot. And for me, I was like, well, I wish people... So at 19 or whatever that was, I had not yet grokked that I had... I, I did say I am grateful for my privilege, I understand, but I had not really grokked it in my gut. So much so that I could still say things like that, and I felt that kind of aggrievement, which is insane. Right. So it took sort of the process of growing up a little bit and I hope that I'm growing up now you know it's the thing about how how clearly does one see oneself you know that's a, a lifelong endeavor I think for me at least and uh, so answer your question is yeah I mean I did but it was crazy that I felt that way yeah but but really interesting because I I remember at that time reading about you in like 2002 and you're like okay like I got my foot in the door through things that I didn't earn but I intend to work really really hard to justify my place here and I just went that seemed like a good answer at the time from from my point of view and yet when I 
when I talked about what you represented without knowing you or anything to other people, I was like, here are the blurbs on his first book, Hunter S. Thompson, George Clinton, and Joan Didion. And they laughed thinking I was offering hyperbole of what the case was. I'm like, no, no, that's true. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't flipped in. It was. Oh, it wasn't. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was, no, it's okay. It was uh, Hunter Thompson, Joan Didion, and Richard Price. Richard Price. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Clinton being a family friend, I guess yeah, that yeah. was written about extensively. Yeah, yeah. But I thought that the fact that people's reaction to it is to laugh, where now the Nepo baby thing has come to the forefront in a way that makes you think like, this isn't a new phenomenon. This has been going on forever. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it has such purchase, but anyway, why don't we, why don't we get to just a summary of the book to begin with? Quiet Street is a memoir and an essay, and it is an accounting of really some of the institutions that I came up in. The grammar school called Buckley, and then high school Riverdale Country School, then Harvard, then Oxford. And it tracks after that the careers of some of my peers, and then projects a little bit off into old age. And so it's a life cycle of someone from the Upper East Side. And observations about the various milestones so there are school days and then you, there's a wedding or two that we talk about i talk about uh and it's a short book yeah it is a brief it is a brief book i, I wondered about that because you're prodigious in terms of i mean i think you're at now 12 books in total 11 11 okay so that's an interesting choice i love short books okay i love the experience of being able to sit down and finish a book in one or two sittings. Oh. And it's, you know, I love the magazine article form too, but there's something about that long novella or longer length form that really hits it for me. Yeah. I mean, what is, I guess around 35, 40,000 words? 30,000 words. 30,000 words. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you don't see too many of those as articles or books. Even though, what, Gatsby's 50,000? Gatsby's, I think, 48. 48, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why people are so averse to it. Um, so in terms of... How do you... Did you do a book proposal for this? No. I had the idea for it. I sat down and I wrote most of it over the course of a few weeks. Huh. And then that that is what I sent off to my agent. And then we started talking about it. And then that initial draft got reworked a lot huh. over the following two years. How did that first draft feel? It felt like a pretty close copy of Such Such Were the Joys by George Orwell, oh. which is this fantastic essay he wrote about his school days and is like less than a quarter of the length of this, but the tone and the structure of it were had a lot to do with how I thought about doing this. Interesting. Did, was Orwell a formative writer for you? Yeah. So Orwell, Orwell, I believe his great great grandparent, or maybe it's his great grandparent, was owned slaves, mm -hmm. and he also, from accounts that I've read, hid his accent when he was on the BBC for fear that it betrayed his education at Eton. Huh. Are these some things that are hitting <laughs> home at all? You know, I don't. I love the writing, but I don't actually know his biography that well. That, those are both interesting things. Uh, I certainly can identify with feeling a little bit of what is this background, this education I have going to do in this 
whatever context I'm in, so I'm aware of it. Uh, but never, never had to uh, broadcast anything on the BBC, so that part <laughs> of it is not coming up. But I mean, yeah. down, down and out in London and Paris. I mean, yeah, I mean that's I admire the work so much, and I think that that's part of what I like to try to do as a journalist too, is to be in another, to be in a community that is not my own and learn about it and write about it for the sake of a larger discussion, which I think is what Orwell was doing. I, I just found that there was a term that was applied to you in criticism for this book, not that it was negative criticism, but just assessing the book, where they said, they're talking about the phenomena of a socioeconomic double or triple agent. Mm -hmm. I never heard that before, mm -hmm. but I thought with Orwell, there is an element of that too. Mm -hmm. Where, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that casting it, there's the idea of the class trader. Yes. The idea that, and that this was a review, at some point someone reviewed a book of mine and said, is he a double agent or a triple agent right. in the class war? So there's the idea of class war, which is a metaphor that's useful or not, depending on sort of where you're going with it. The way that I think about this is less in terms of, it doesn't necessarily have to be so antagonistic, sure. the class war. So I don't think of myself as a traitor to a class. In fact, I think sometimes although they would disagree, perhaps, that the values of these school that I went to, Buckley, for example, and certainly Harvard, you know, the idea is that you were searching for truth and the possibility for civil discourse is that I am not so much a traitor to my class as somebody who is just trying to see the world accurately and report it as a reporter. Yeah, and I think you do, um, but there, again, some of the criticism I thought was interesting was that there are dueling motivations in this one being to confess and mm -hmm. one being to reveal mm -hmm. and as you reveal members of your class which you do name names but you don't according to them mm -hmm. you don't name names that haven't already been named mm -hmm. and i thought that is an interesting choice mm -hmm. because i remember or well i'll just wait for the siren to go yeah this is I love Basquiat distilling New York to sirens, taxis, and airplanes flying overhead. And leave. And leave. Wolwell made an observation about Dickens that always stayed with me, and I don't know how to unpack it, <coughs> is that this is a man who criticized every element of his society and offended nobody. Mm -hmm. And I don't get that, but I also like who didn't love Dickens in his time. There were no protests against any of his work, mm -hmm. really from the powers that be. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder how you how you navigate that. Like, part of the criticism about the revealing element is, who does this make uncomfortable from your class? Mm -hmm. Not that that should be your intention. Well, over the last week, I've been doing events. And so I did an event at, you know, I've taken, questions from the left and from the right yeah and certainly somebody said to me last night i am in the one percent i am self-made i earned every dollar i work a hundred hours a week uh and he actually and and why should i sit here and listen to you talk about this and i didn't know why he should sit there and listen to me talk about it but uh he's somebody who was made uncomfortable by it mm. and the part that i had read he hadn't read the book yet the part that i had read was just the beginning about why i was doing this thing and uh, i also listed how much money i have and and paid for the book and broke that taboo and that made him uncomfortable but on the other hand i did an event the other night with some 
friends of mine who are very active politically on the left and the questions coming out of the crowd had a current of why can't we go you go a little farther in this book why aren't you actually naming more people or doing more aggressive and so it, it comes from both both directions and my answer is that i just tried to see in my own childhood really what this book is mostly about as accurately as i could and that's what it's about more than it's about trying to name particular private equity or hedge fund guys and right. out them i mean that's a piece of investigative journalism that is not this particular project. No, it's no, it's not. It, but it, it did seem to beg the question at times. Like you mentioned, there's a famous incident in the book where somebody is bragging about shitting in their bed, and so the mate has to clean it. That's mm -hmm. the explicit purpose of it. Right. And a reviewer said, "Where do they end up? Mm -hmm. Who are the people working under them right now? Where do you think they ended up? If you were to guess." <laughs> Um, finance? Correct. That's correct. One piece of advice I got from somebody once, a great writer named Carl Charles Greenfeld. I know. I think, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, LA was, Times. Yeah, he's done so many great yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. And it's connected in, to me through this book, through the Nepo Baby thing. You know, I, I had a job for him in Hong Kong a long time ago. He worked at Sports Illustrated for my dad. And he... I admire him very much, and he wrote me, I, I can't remember which it was about this or something else, but he said something, and maybe he got the line somewhere else, that the hardest thing to do is to say the thing that everybody already knows mm. in a way that actually makes people think about it or care about it. So you knew the guy worked in finance, and I don't know, I don't want to generalize, because in the book I'm trying not to generalize, but I do like the idea that by being as specific as I can, generalizable ideas come to people's heads that I don't necessarily have to say because I am so much more comfortable in the specifics of the thing and that I think is how you get to any good conceptual move. Well, and, and, and taking that measure of transparency like you mentioned, because you went beyond it in terms of not just how much you got paid for it. So of course, some reviewers are saying, here's how much you got paid per page, $1,500 per page to do this thing. Isn't he monetizing his class again or monetizing his guilt on some level? But you talked about the apartment that you own. Um, you break that down. I think you did it before in a book as well where you mentioned. Thank you for that. Yeah, I did. And the, in the Iraq, Afghanistan, civilian, in the bodies in person, which was about civilian casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. And I find this particularly interesting because the little media that I've done where I've been asked to give an interview about a book I've done or something like that, I've looked at the other people who've been invited. And like one example that jumped out at me is Long Form has done, I think, 350 interviews with journalists all over the place. I've never heard anybody talk about student debt mm -hmm. when they're on that show, which tells me as much as there's an attempt at diversity with gender or race, socioeconomically, these people are all from basically the same class not necessarily yours that you're talking about in this book, but not that far off in many instances mm -hmm. where the tenor of what journalism becomes for that class, traditionally a blue collar job, seems very different mm -hmm. to me. And I don't hear this brought up very much amongst all of the discussion, and it's a very worthy discussion of race and gender representation, socioeconomic 
representation in journalism, i.e. the people you're reporting on. I mean, you went to school with all the people you'd be reporting on if you were covering politics in the U.S. How are you going to do that in a way that is necessarily adversarial? These are exactly the kind of questions that I think need to be asked. I think that's right. I mean, how, how am I going to do it myself, personally, and be adversarial, do you mean? I, well, yeah, or, or would wander. <coughs> I mean, right. Uh, isn't it designed with all of the incentives to not be that way, to maintain access, or or to not be aware of things with that? I don't think that there is a design, usually. I think that it's the combined incentives create a system in which adversarial truth-telling can be disincentivized. Okay. Because it's convenient and there are questions of access and it's people want to be friends when they run into each other at the cocktail party or the kids go to school together or, or, or people same. you're covering at war yeah well that's one of the examples in the book i mean i was in at this combat outpost in mosul a long time ago before the mosul battle in 2017 on embed with the first cavalry and i was in this uh hooch outside sort of trailers that the uh, the infantry guys were sleeping in, and the lieutenant who was running that unit, we there some mortars had landed, and I said, "Why don't we go inside the hotel? There's a great big hotel building there." And he said, "Well, the seals have that hotel. We can't go in there." And I thought, "Well, this is annoying. Why can't this be safer in there? We should go in." But I didn't know much about the military at all at that point, and so you know there are reasons for this kind of thing. Anyway, I didn't think about that combat hotel for some time. Then I got invited back to Buckley, and it turned out that one of the SEALs in Combat Hotel was a guy I went to Buckley with. So I was outside the hotel writing pretty critically about the war, very critically about the war, and he was inside fighting it. But then we ran into each other back at Buckley, and we got to be friends. And on the one hand, it's great that there is you know, civil discourse, we disagree politically about things. On the other hand, it does make it more difficult to be adversarial in a way that is important also when you run into somebody like that at your school. Right. So. And another, another review pointed out an interesting thing, I thought, in terms of, as you're describing the amenities that your school offered at Buckley, which is around $60,000 a year, um, that shouldn't these be rights instead of privileges for everybody to go to school? And, and I, I don't know, I couldn't help but think, I remember seeing like the rich neighborhood where I grew up in Vancouver. Mm -hmm where all the, the mansions were, and there are not many mansions in Vancouver, it's, it's barely a city, it feels like more like a residential town in many respects, is they were all in one area that had a really great view of a river. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, there were no parks available to view that river, mm -hmm. to, to enjoy that panoramic. And I thought, is the pleasure having the view or depriving the public from the view for these people? Yeah. Uh, I I I mean I hope it's the I hope it's having it rather than the latter, but those things are connected. And Facebook, I mean, initially, like the the great eureka moment for Zuckerberg, right, was exclusivity. Yeah. Who, who gets kept out? I remember that because a friend of mine at the time, I was Zuckerberg's class. I met him a couple times, and he friend of mine when Facebook was coming out was like hey can I have your Harvard email account so that I can get onto this thing oh. and that was the moment I thought what is going yeah this thing is I was surprised I didn't even know about it but that worked well, okay that 
leads to something I've always been curious about with you. You have very little footprint in mm -hmm. terms of social media. Um, for someone your age, five years younger than me, that's pretty unusual. I, I wonder how how you went about making that choice, how you managed to avoid it. I remember um, somebody I interviewed on the podcast at Sports Illustrated, probably worked for your dad, S.L. Price said, um, the terrible thing about Twitter is people see how awful we are. Uh, there are kind of two two ways I think about the answer to this. One is that I am like privileged to use that word enough that I don't need it right. in a way. And right. I don't mean because my books are so successful. I mean because I happen to do this job where I haven't had to be looking for jobs on LinkedIn. If you want to get a job, for a lot of people, you got to be on the internet. You got to right. be on LinkedIn. You got to be on social media. It's so important to some people. And because of the weird path my own career has taken, I haven't had to. So that's the one reason. And the other reason why I haven't done it is because I just don't feel good when I do it. Like looking at Twitter, looking at Instagram, being on that stuff, after I do it, and I have a lurker account sometimes, and for research in Iraq, I've had, had to be on Facebook to connect with people in, in Ukraine. But at the end of doing it for 30, 40 minutes an hour, I, I, I never feel better. I usually feel worse. So I've always tried to find other ways to do the work I needed to do. I would have to push back a little bit, though, that everybody who smokes cigarettes, I don't know that any of them argue they feel better as a result of it. Oh, man, I miss smoking cigarettes. I felt so good after. I, you have to smoke a cigarette, then afterwards you go, ah. Yeah. I never felt that way after social Probably. media. Yeah. The next morning after smoking a lot of cigarettes, is different point taken. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just I just mean everybody feels like shit on social media. I mean, like all the Jonathan Haidt shit about in terms of a whole generation of, of people, the clear factor of what's leading to suicidal ideation, anxiety, depression is social media's influence, especially on women, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, it is almost irresistible to journalists um, or like an Elon Musk. I mean, if anybody had less incentive to be on it, I, I just wanted, do you feel the pull of it in terms of, I don't know if it's about socializing with other journalists or like I, you mentioned status initially, I guess. Mm -hmm. Isn't it all about status, likes, followers, etc.? I really, I, I think maybe I don't feel the pull of it that much because it also feels like it interferes with the work that I really want to do. And the things that I really want to write, they, for me at least, they take a long time really. And you, you know, you write books too. It's like, I don't know, do you have to sort of like shut everything out to do it? I, I, you, I want to, yeah. but I find it, I mean, I don't play much of a role in social media, yeah. but it's sure a time suck you know just to i get a lot of the articles i read from twitter yeah. but i don't participate i don't know how to play the game right with it well one thing i do think about is how to be kind of a responsible citizen maybe i should be on it more because i want to engage with people and i want to sort of know what's going on but then it's a balance between that and feeling how it makes you feel yeah so oh i wonder in in your book which to me felt like you, you mentioned, I think in an interview that you had a, a sarcastic tone at some, in some way. I didn't sense it to be sarcastic. I didn't, don't think it's that sarcastic either, but a friend of mine who read the book, who's in the book, when I gave it to her to read, she said, oh, this is a sarcastic insider's account of, okay. and actually she got back to me recently and said, that wasn't exactly what I said, so I gotta figure that out, but I think she used the word sarcastic. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it came, it came up, and I think a reviewer touched yeah. on it as well, darkly sarcastic yeah. or something. I didn't find it that way. It's not that I didn't sense you had a sense of humor. It's just that. Thank you. <laughs> but but I also can appreciate. Maybe you can too. Like when I've tried to write about 
Cuba, which I see as a deeply serious issue in terms of what people are living under and a political regime which people are willing to die to escape, um, what I feel very uncomfortable as an outsider reporting on is how funny the people are and how funny their insights are about things. It's so darkly sardonic, but I feel like who am I to even allow any of that to infiltrate the perspective? And because it seems like you're not taking it seriously, even though I think the joke is like there, there's a Cuban expression: "Life is a joke to be taken very seriously." I yeah, I I think my own problem may be, may be that I'm just not that funny much of the time, <laughs> and so I need to work on my timing, perhaps. No, I, I yeah, that's a serious business. This book it's about inequality, so I try to be very serious about it. But some of it's funny, strange, and and I I took it almost in an English way that you have a dry dry wit and it is applied in places where I could see you kind of looking askance at moments as you've delivered a line I, uh, but I was like I don't know we, we don't know each other terribly well but I did think humor when I think about these modern movements like in terms of could be the Me Too movement or, or, or any movement really the role that humor has, the role that the jester has, mm -hmm. it seems to me why it's vital to the discourse is offering a sense of proportionality, mm -hmm. which is the moment I see a movement that has no sense of humor, I know there's an insecurity that maybe we're a little out of proportion with where the public is right now. So a place like South Park, for example, seen the first, play, first place that society felt like they could pile on to Prince Harry and Meghan mm -hmm. to be like, this is fucking absurd. I mean, what did they have? The Leave Me Alone World Tour. Mm -hmm. And suddenly everyone's like, aha. I wondered if you were doing a satire of what this book is, what the potential added value or other value might be to exploring the dynamics that you lay out. Uh, I mean, you're a novelist. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that gives me more very hard to be funny. It's very hard to be funny. South Park rules. And there's something in the tone of this book, like some drafts of this book had a much archer, higher tone. Oh. And could have read in a higher, richer, quote unquote, register. And then deciding sort of where to calibrate that thing and also figuring out how much control I actually had over that thing. That was all part of it. But it could have, it's not a satire. I mean, it's, it's straight, but but it could have gone that way if it had been dialed in a different direction. Mm. Well, and you, I mean, you touched on it very briefly, which I found interesting in terms of uh, where your family came from, as we mentioned earlier, was not old money. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you could just yeah illuminate that a little bit more. Right. Well, so one of the things in this book is of this idea, and this guy last night who was saying, I'm self-made. This is the most beloved story in American politics. People yeah. want to say, in America, both Obama and Trump, and everybody on every side in every party, the one thing everybody agrees on is, in America, everything is possible. And so this idea of the meritocracy is deeply ingrained. And it makes sense because people want to, people, many people work very hard, and the idea that you don't, you didn't earn what you have is infuriating. So the difficult thing, and one of the things I hope, people ask me what's the takeaway of the book, and I dodge because I just want the book to be read, but one of the takeaways is, well, no matter how hard you work, you come from somewhere, and where that somewhere is, is determinative in a way that 
we got to come to terms with if we want to try to make a more humane society. So with regard to my parents, my dad is a self-made guy in the sense that he was, his mother was a school teacher. She grew up in a house without running water. She was a single mom. They moved around a lot. He had a difficult time when he was a kid. They didn't have much money at all. And now he's a famous magazine editor and media executive, and he made a lot of money and he sent me to private school, so he's self-made. He also was a white guy, baby boomer, beneficiary of the public school system in California in the particular neighborhoods that he lived and all of the things that also helped make him. And he's very aware of that stuff because, and he's a reflective, reflective guy. Uh, so he's both self-made and also made by this other thing. And he would be like a new money kind of guy. So the tension between old money and new money, I guess the thing that I want to think about is what is self-made? You know, what, where, how old does it have to be for it to be that old? I mean, even the new money, everybody's telling the same story. If I didn't work real hard, my dad worked really hard right. or his dad worked really hard. Well, anybody who gets any money is going to tell that story. So the question is now here that we are, what do we do? If we just keep telling that story, maybe it's not going to change things much. Yeah. And I mean, what is it like a third of all money in the U.S. is inherited? And number one determinator for your economic outcome is your area code. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't sound at all like a meritocracy. Right. Um, but that, that idea has a real grip hugely. on the country, on people. Hugely. And funny thing also is that people will come up to me and say, I earned what I made. And they will basically imply the meritocracy works. But at the same time, they will say, and it's rigged. And the people at the top are crooks. So there are these two things within people and separating them out and trying to see why they exist is a worthy topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, Biden is completely senile, but he's also the greatest criminal conspirator that has ever been in the White House. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's amazing. Well, and, you know, reading your book, there are two things that jumped out at me. Wait for this guy to go by. We're really getting the full range of New York. We got the street sweeper, <laughs> we fun. got the siren. <laughs> um, did you ever read a book by uh, Katrina Brown called Traces of the Trade? So Katrina Brown was a descendant of James DeWolf, who was the largest slave um, trading family, part of the largest slave trading family in American history from Bristol, Rhode Island. They, they brought over 10,000 slaves, where they believe the estimate is about half a million African-Americans are descendants of those slaves. So she did a, a documentary and also a book called um, Traces of the Trade. It was stories of the, the deep north. A lot of people don't know just how huge an industry it was in the north. And so I think of 200 relatives that she wrote to that kind of said, you know, we should sort of talk about our family mm -hmm. and the privilege that we've inherited as a result of this dwarf legacy. I think there were three generations of slave traders. Even when it was illegal, they found business ways around um, maintaining the industry. And obviously the whole town has been benefiting with um, ancillary businesses, you know, making the shackles, making the barrels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, of 200 
uh, people that she contacted to talk about their privilege, I think nine agreed to discuss it. And so she brought them to look at the, the triangle of the slave trade from the north to the Ivory Coast down to Havana where the slave auctions were and then they're selling molasses and, and, and various things. Um, but what reminded me about it from your book was they sit down and have a dinner and one of the relatives says, I feel a little uncomfortable with this documentary because you were forcing me to say where I went to college as if it means something that I went to Harvard. And Brown said, well, how many of us went to Ivy League institutions? All but one. Most of it was Harvard. I think there's Brown. I think there was a Yale. And one of the guys said, wait a minute. I don't, again, I don't like what you're implying. I could read by the time I was three. I taught myself. I did everything myself. And she went, how many of us, our parents went to Ivy League institutions? Every, all of them. Mm -hmm. What about their parents? Yes. And suddenly it was like, for me, it was, I mean, this was like 2001. The first time I'd seen that class have a kind of collective autopsy mm -hmm. on how much did we really achieve mm -hmm. versus was just given to us. We didn't directly get money from the dual family, mm -hmm. but how much opportunity did we get? What kind of passport was just mm -hmm. bestowed upon us? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just thought like, there's that side of, grappling with privilege that makes people from your class so uncomfortable and then there's sort of like the wolf of wall street inventorying something that i i used to train boxing to some wall street traders and they went i know we're supposed to feel guilty about this mm -hmm. what is there to feel guilty about this feels fabulous yeah i don't think that guilt is a particularly useful feeling for <laughs> anybody that around this stuff uh and i don't think it motivates thoughtful discussions or change and I am often asked do you feel guilty why did you apologize and I don't look at the book as an apology no no, no you know? I don't either and I I think that the there is guilt because there have been crimes committed historically and people should answer for them but the idea that one should feel guilty because of where one is born doesn't make any sense but there is this there is this other thing though where victimhood seems to be conflated with virtue in a way that I don't quite understand. Like I my mother's half Jewish or more than that, even the ancestry thing keeps recalibrating. Mm -hmm. Um I don't understand how it makes me in any way virtuous to have members of my family killed in the Holocaust. Well, I don't know how virtuous you in particular are, but I think that the reason, I don't, yeah, I don't know that it does. I think that virtue is earned rather than inherited. But I mean, even through the idea of victimhood, like uh, the ascension of victimhood mm -hmm. is something that I do see in the culture in a way that I don't quite understand. Mm -hmm. Because there seems to be a competing narrative between um, recognizing institutional inequality or mm -hmm. oppression and simultaneously this other drive to be opportunistic with what where one could look at how their life has been harrowing or suffering you know like i thought about reading your book there was a bit of overlap with anthony bourdain in that bourdain came from an extremely privileged position in many respects compared to the general public you know his mom was at the new york times his mom got his first book into david remnick she knew his wife mm -hmm. directly 
Well, he lied about all of that. He was hiding all the privilege. It was, I don't want to be born on third base mm -hmm. with respect to my connections. You go the opposite route mm -hmm. in terms of laying out, you know, what you're getting paid, who you're connected to, where, where your father has worked and everything, who were family friends, who your godfather is. Well, I also just want to know when I look at other people, I'm like, well, how did this happen? Who is this guy? Where's he from? How did he get the money? I think those things. I wonder those questions. So I figure, well, other people are probably wondering that same stuff. Right. I didn't know that about Bourdain, that he lied about that. Oh, slush pile. I, I did send fucking shit to a slush pile for two years with my first books. Right. And I'm not saying I'm the most hard, excuse yeah, me, yeah. The hardest case, but I, right. I thought there was a hope in hell of something in a slush pile being read. And as right. soon as I got to a publishing house where I had a deal, I said, does anybody actually read the slush pile? I said, of course not. Right. Who the fuck would read a slush pile? But so he said that his book came out of the slush pile? Yes. Oh, but he's right. but he's creating, and this is what I'm intrigued by with your own, I mean, we all craft our own mm -hmm. narrative and myth to the extent that we can. I mean, these uh, competing aspects of our existing is, is the, the drive towards publicity and the drive towards privacy. Um, but you... You offering transparency in a way that's highly unusual, especially in publishing. It's totally taboo to talk about what you got paid for things. And as I mentioned with the long-form podcast, nobody mentions that all their parents, pretty much to a person, are doctors or lawyers, and like that was the expectation for them. But I just love journalism so much that I was taken into it. They never mentioned it without student loans. It's a completely different uh, calculus than somebody else who's going to make no money in journalism or book writing for that. So what do you think it is? Why do you think nobody wants to talk about that? Um, I do think it's guilt. I mean, um, but I also think, I mean, what is, if it's not about making money in journalism and it's an anachronistic profession in terms of its cultural capital, certainly relative to what it was, you know, same with books, um, then what is the payoff? What are you getting out of it? Prestige? I, I, I'm not guessing, I, I'm, I'm speculating, but um, that's my takeaway when I listen to it is it's not about the money, so it's virtue signaling in that sense. Well, of course it's not about money because you don't need the money. Um, so then what is it? It's, it's status, it's you're more interesting to people to do this as a kind of field trip as a rich person mm -hmm. that can afford to go these places. I mean, I remember hearing a writer, I won't name them, say to an editor of mine, I really like that story that you published, but it wasn't reported enough. And I thought, well, you're on a $300,000 salary where all expenses are paid. None of us are. We're making, even if we can get six stories into this online magazine, making probably 15 grand a year, we have very little expenses to go anywhere. You could spend, you write four stories a year for your magazine mm -hmm. and make 300 grand and mm -hmm. all expenses are paid and you stay at top hotels mm -hmm. and as long as you want mm -hmm. on stuff. We don't have that privilege, but you see it as if we're competing on an equal basis. And that's what pissed me off. So I, I don't know, when I, yeah. when I listen to long form thing, that's what <clears throat> irks me. I'm curious for your opinion about something. Would you, uh, I've been talking to some people recently who are trying to start, originally they framed it as a sort of a media startup, but it's in a tradition of short sellers, activist short sellers. Yeah. And the idea is that they would publish articles about bad actors and then 
based on bad press or regulatory action, profit based on short trades about these people. And I was talking with someone about this and they said, yeah, well, there's a long tradition of journalists and writers when they want to make more money going from journalism into this kind of research. And in the context of a media landscape where it's hard to figure out what's journalism and what's not, and the lines are, maybe they're always blurred, but they're very explicitly talked about blurred right now. I wonder what you think about moving between those worlds where you might be trying to report the absolute truth, but the incentive structure is a little bit different. Sure. What do you think about that kind of targeted politically act, like activist research, given that with the caveat that it, in doing it, one would try to hew to the same levels of accuracy that you would have in a newspaper. Yeah, I mean... Is it an impossible conflict of interest? Is it worthwhile <laughs> stuff to be putting out there? Because I think about somebody who... People have the guy on $300,000 a year you were mentioning, and people who are making $15,000 for six articles, you know? It's like, it's all in that journalism, that high journalism wanting to be in that zone. Yeah, so I wonder what you think about it. Well, it's, I mean, it's weird to see what that system thinks about me. Like, I was, like, you've been in the New York Times, I've been in the New York Times profiled and reviewed there, too. Mm -hmm. How many people are reviewed or profiled there per year? Very, very few, mm -hmm. right? Like, you're in a rare group. Now, when I was profiled in it, the thing they pointed out on Twitter when they tweeted out the story was, he's on Medicaid and he wouldn't have it any other way. I never said that. I aspire. Headlines. I, yeah, I aspire yeah. to be on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Really? Do you, do you know what it's like to go to a Medicaid dentist? Because mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't come from that. I came from middle class mm -hmm. in Vancouver, like the most, quote, livable city in the world sort of thing. So what did the, how did the quote come about? What happened? I mean, what was the, where I did they know. just like... They just, well, I did mention that I was like, I've just got a two book deal. Uh -huh. And, and or sorry, I'd had, I'd written about Cuba twice. They were all critically well-reviewed stuff. I've never been a good seller. Mm -hmm. And I've just got a book deal with Simon and & Schuster and I still qualify for Medicaid. So mm -hmm. I just said, just a bit of a wake-up call because mm -hmm. I have interviewed some very prominent boxers, athletes, or some personalities. And the assumption is, is that journalism is as well-paid as it, it's always been. It's not, mm -hmm. which is what, why I bring up that most of the people, it doesn't make any difference because they're already coming from money. Right. So, yeah. so it's just... Uh, I like that you're transparent about what you're getting paid and, and, you know, the circumstances in which you're living because it is something that when I listen to the podcast, reading between the lines, I'm sort of like, it didn't matter what you would do. There was never a chance to fail. And I, I thought coming up, and again, I'm, I'm white. My, my dad is a child protection lawyer. Like, I had advantages too. Mm -hmm. But relative to those kind of, you know, relative to you as... as um, I, you know, I'm going to hand this book over to my godfather who runs this publishing house. Yeah. I was sort of like, yeah. And you talk about that too in a way that's very unusual where you talk about the book did well. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, yeah, it was also excerpted in the New York Times. It was also excerpted in the Paris Review. Did you get paid for those excerpts? It was excerpted in the Paris Review, not in the New York Times. I didn't get paid for the excerpt. Okay, yeah. I didn't either when my yeah, book yeah. was, because my book was excerpted in Esquire, the Paris Review, and Harper's, and I yeah. got nothing. So, hence, Medicaid. But again, most people think, like, it's in a prestigious place, and certainly those magazines said that to well, me. Well, also, now, I mean, Harper's ought to pay you if they're excerpting your book. <laughs> well, one would, yeah. hope. one would hope, but it was just yeah. like, this is the ecosystem right. that you're in. And they all just said, well, it's exposure, it's prestige. Yeah. Well, I don't need that. I need to pay the rent. Yeah, the same thing with publishing. I mean, to be an editor at a publishing house here, 
they make $35,000, exactly $45,000 right. a year. So who, who can do that? Right. And I mean, you're you're writing about a 124th Street and, and 2nd Avenue. I lived there for five years. And I was the only white person in my building. And there were drive-by shootings as I'm biking to go to boxing lessons mm -hmm. and stuff like that. There's a police station on that block right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know when that police station got was built there. I don't remember it being there when I was doing that drive as a kid. I don't remember it being built. But I mean, it was a, a bracing thing to go from Vancouver to Spanish Harlem. I mean, it's still one of the most dangerous places in probably in the state sort of thing. Fascinating. But I was thinking about you being there from where you came from and mentioning like I'm in the confines of kind of the armored car as school bus. But I felt very exposed being there, mm -hmm. you know, just as a white person in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I remember every morning getting up in my building when I walked down the stairs and you'd hear all the carts coming down the steps because most of the people in that building were living seven or eight people to a one bedroom and they'd go to the subways to sell churros you know whatever they could bake to sell and i was like wow i'm, I'm at quite a level of commerce of the immigrant experience that is a lot of desperation how the hell are these people going to get out of this how do you how do you make it in manhattan selling churros sort of thing and yet they were doing it every day Every day is clank, 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 clank down the stairs. Yeah. But I wondered, as I was reading your book, did, did you read Atticus Lish's Preparation for the Next Life? No. That's a good New York novel huh. about how people make it or don't uh, as immigrants when they're arriving in the city trying to live on minimum wage or less. Interesting huh. novel. It's a novel about a. He's a guy who was the son of a famous magazine editor, oh, uh, yeah, book right. editor Gordon Lish, who edited Raymond Carver. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a really good book. Interesting. He's he's a fighter too, an MMA guy, I think. Oh. Anyway, I think you'd be interested. I'll look in him up. That stuff. I'll look him Atticus up. Lish, yeah. But I mean, you mentioned with with journalists. I mean, what is what is your view? I mean, you talk about it a bit when you're covering war. I know with Ben Anderson, sort of privately. It's really interesting to get his take on other people who were there. What do you what do you see with people in your like taking the kind of risks that you do to cover conflict to to bring back a representation of it to the public? Do you like the people? Do you trust the people that are there? Like, well, Ben Anderson is a good example. That's a guy who just stuck himself with a camera right at the pointy end of a lot of difficult moments in the war on terror over the all those years sure so i certainly like i trust what he brought back uh and then to generalize yeah i mean i my the people i know who work at the major newspapers they've all been uh, i don't know I'm, I'm thinking now trying to really answer the question it's a lot of people over a long time so it is difficult to generalize but yeah, I mean, many of my closest relationships are with people who I've met doing this kind of work. Hmm. Do they do they strike you as people coming from your background? Like, do you feel a kind of common cause with them? There is... How to generalize? Yeah, and I apologize yeah, for yeah. being so general. No, it's okay. I mean, I it's, it's necessary to have, like, political discussions. One has to speak generally. And one of the things I'm trying to think about how to do better is how to generalize but 
some yes some no i mean i have a couple friends staying with me now and they are you know son of a doctor but not from this kind of one percent background uh by and large they're not certainly from the upper east side of the one percent the way that i was but they are people who went to liberal arts universities and however they were there probably not totally by scholarship you know uh but it's a pretty diverse array of people i mean another good friend of mine she grew up internationally so there's that sort of internationally i just mean not the united states you know she's so yeah i feel like i'm not doing a very good job of answering this question but they're just there are a lot of them i mean generally speaking people who are foreign correspondents in my experience come from the middle and upper middle class that's the that's right. been my experience of it. Right. But there, there are some notable exceptions. And like you said, journalism was a blue-collar job. Right. So. Well, and it's interesting you have movies <coughs> providing lip service like Spotlight, where I think it's pointed out, we have a Jew in Boston overseeing our paper now, mm-hmm. and now we can see something that's been right in front of us mm-hmm. for generations, and it took an outsider to really spot a problem, mm-hmm. to diagnose it. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that's an inter- interesting point of view because you talked about like the people you're covering over there and all, all of these conflicts are not your background. Right, but that's something that I think is interesting too, the outsider spotting it, because yeah. sometimes it takes an outsider to spot a problem, diagnosis and break open a problem, but it takes an insider to solve the problem. Right. And ideally you have both of these things working in concert. And this is why it's, I think that it's not some people I've had conversations where they're like, why do you even need foreign correspondents? Why don't you just all have local people who do it? And I think that there is use and value to foreign correspondents, even though we can look at everything on social media, right up close footage. And even though I think that there is a value in, in a perspective from one place being in another and having an outside perspective. Yeah. No, I mean, we mentioned Bourdain earlier. I always thought it was interesting not that he came from super wealth, but I mean, the dad being from, I think, I think he went to Yale and Bourdain went to Vassar. His mom's at the New York Times, and yet he's kind of cosplaying poverty. I'm a drug addict on the Lower East Side. Well, there's no way to verify that either way, but it sure makes a great story to have overcome that. And you hear people say, "I've never met anybody who's a drug addict who just came out of it and could still drink and do this kind of stuff." Well maybe the mystery is is that he wasn't actually a drug addict i don't know mm-hmm. one way or the other mm-hmm. but i i think it's interesting that i've never seen you really attempt that kind of myth myth making you talk about it about your your peers and in your first book about people on the upper east side cosplaying being black mm-hmm. and you talk about it in this book what do you think that that's that that's about that dynamic Oof, boy that's a that's a dark and heavy one why do teenage kids and the white teenage white kids in the upper east side mimic black kids and they did in my school too in yeah. vancouver and i was just like we don't have any black people in vancouver practically There's a, at the time <coughs> i think there are ways to talk about that that range from eminem to the neighborhood they're living next to and the whole history of racial politics but maybe specific to specific to the friends that you mention in this book mm-hmm. what did you what, what did you make of that? I thought that those kids did it kind of the way that kids played with matches. They didn't understand that 
danger and the import of what they were doing. They knew that the thing they were doing was in some ways the most transgressive thing they could be doing, although it wasn't because it was even possible that it could be happening because of the school and the culture of the school and so on and their parents. And so they did it to be macho, get attention, the kind of things that 14 year old boys do, but they did it upon a history of violence that they did not have acts, did not really understand. Right. Uh, and were not capable of understanding at the age of 12, or they were capable of it, but they didn't. And one of the things I write in this book is that I, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, I saw, remember a 15 year old kid with a rifle. And I've seen that in another place, other places too. And, uh, you know, I, my tendency is to think, well, we were 13, 14, 15 year old kids and think, well, we were kids. But on the other hand, I think about people who have real life and death decisions to make when they're 15 years old. And so I remember that when I'm judging. What do you think? Um, I've been doing a lot of research on a, a character in a, a book I'm working on where he is a completely legitimately self-made guy. He's going door to door selling carrot seeds mm -hmm. and then a just used car salesman carrot seeds carrot seeds in the prairies of canada mm -hmm. and he went from that grew up during the depression and then used car salesman all the way up to and i think he's worth 11 billion dollars now in canada um but his observation was that when he went from selling the used cars often if you were selling nice cars that went to wealthy families that he said children from real wealth are some of the worst people that I've ever dealt with. So with my own children, they know that I'll look after them until they're 18. After that, they're on their own, they're not gonna inherit anything, and all that kind of thing. I I wonder what gave you your drive. Like, I'm not saying I ascribe to his view, mm -hmm. but there are many people that I've met, like when I've come across somebody who'll say, my job is I'm a butler for a wealthy family. And I'll say, what the hell does that mean? I say, basically I'm in charge of looking after how much money is allocated for the shopping for the kids and like i'm people really live this way like they don't do anything the whole family and and this butler is making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year just overseeing the household while dad brings in the money and this is i don't know many of these people but i've encountered them and i've trained a lot of kids of people that can afford a hundred bucks an hour for a boxing lesson and sometimes been training under like a a work of art that kind of looks like a Matisse. What do you mean it looks like a Matisse? It is a Matisse and we're training in a hallway mm -hmm. and yet they don't see themselves anywhere close to where they are socioeconomically because they're not in the penthouse that would cost three times as much. Or I'll get a lecture about don't think I'm rich like I'm still grinding and I'll think you're in a four million dollar apartment. So I wonder what what allowed you to not kind of rest on your laurels because you've been extremely hardworking. It's a combination, weirdly, of the schools. They do, they are rigorous and they demand attention. And it doesn't mean that everyone gives it to them, but if you, you know, you can get as much out of them as you put in, in some respect. So I had that education that made me love the books and the work that I do. And also, I think it was my parents. You know, mm. my, my dad is a hard worker and my mom they instilled in me this idea that you gotta work and that's part of why but i mean i dreamt of trying to beat some of my early literary heroes to publication you know mm -hmm. i knew that hemingway 26 kind of hit it out of the park or fitzgerald earlier on 
you mentioned Fitzgerald a little bit. I mean, Gatsby fits into this a little bit. Um, 18 was absurd to be a first-time novelist, and I almost got in the door at 21 with, like, Knopf, and mm-hmm. then it fell apart, and I was like, I'll never get another opportunity. And then I look back at when I finally did at 33, think if I got that at 20, I would have self-destructed. I, I don't think I would have been able to handle either what it was or what it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how you seem to have handled that much attention and success where, I mean, I don't know much about your personal life, but I've not heard any negative stories about it. Mm-hmm. Did it throw you off to get that kind of attention? It was very weird and unusual, and I certainly have moments that I regret. When I was in college once, a lot of people came up to me in the first kind of week or two and said, oh, you're the novelist guy, you're the famous novelist guy. And one time, I small but sort of horrible thing I did, I had this little piece of paper and I like chucked it at this guy's face when he asked me, and I just was like, I don't want to answer this question. Kind of like was a joke. I don't even remember who the guy was now, but I remember doing that. And thinking, that was a fucked up thing you just did. The guy was just asking you a question. So certainly, I, you know, I had so much attention that I got tired of it sometimes, and then I bristled when people asked me about it. Uh, but I just I like the work. You know, I liked doing the work. I guess is the answer to the question. And so I always thought if you just keep doing this stuff and get the chance to keep doing it. I, I want to keep doing it. Yeah. But does that do, answer the question? It does. Or, yeah. It does. But you, you mentioned earlier, an an element of of what journalism represented to you was yeah. status that was appealing. Yeah. So I wonder. That's. I mean, we're talking two thousand two when yeah. you get your first book out, pre-internet, pre pre-social, not pre. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, it's pre-social media on there. Um, I don't get a big sense from you that the status thing is a thing that you're chasing in a big way anymore. Is that because of the early dealings with it, or am I wrong? I, I don't. No, I think you're you're right. It's a it's a. I of course am interested in status. I like to have nice things written about the book, but I think that it's not. The books are what matter. And the, all the other stuff, it matters a lot politically. The discourse around it matters and trying to participate to... I just feel like I'm talking in platitudes, but that's the real at the bottom of this work are some platitudes for me about the status of it doesn't matter so much because I have enough financial security to keep doing it for now. Status would matter a lot more if my financial security was tied to the status of it, but it's not mm. right now. So. I think that being able to get by without having to worry so much about the status of it has is this enormous gift that like frees me to not care so much about the status of it. But that's yeah, yeah. Did you did you have blueprints at all of early <clears throat> writers whose career you wanted to model yours on? I was surrounded by writers. That's the other thing. I mean, part of the reason well, who I were they? Like, so like P. J. O'Rourke. Yeah, he was my godfather actually. Uh, and the, the publisher of Grow was my brother's. Okay. So PJ was mine. Uh, and Hunter Thompson was my brother's other godfather. Uh, so I was a kid around these people. And you I saw Hunter a lot? Not a lot, but I, a few times when I was a kid and went out and hung out in Woody Creek. And 
was glad to, I mean, at the time I knew him as Uncle Hunter, and uh, yeah, first, I mean, there's so many Hunter stories, people like telling Hunter stories, and he's an iconic person, but with regards to your question, yeah. having people who were writers, real serious writers who dedicated their life to writing outside of anything else, though that gave me models. But Hunter's a really interesting one because the writer that he was is not why he's so talked about now. And the person he became, even he seemed to be very almost remorseful. But without the writing, there would have been none of that. No, that's true. So there is at the core of it, the guy who retyped The Great Gatsby just to see how it felt. Right. But I just mean the level of insight that he had to diagnose that the Hells Angels were not an aberration from American society, but a direct byproduct. Mm -hmm. That guy is not the one who's talked about anymore with Hunter. Mm -hmm. He became that cartoon thing that seems really tragic and you don't seem at all like the, the character to get attention that he became which I'm not saying isn't a brilliant creation in and of itself, but but I always, when I think about that guy and the people who love that guy, feel mm -hmm. terrible. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I think about that earnest writer trying to become Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. carrying that torch. Um, I, I This is another line I've gotten somewhere else, but yeah. the work that is, some of the greatest works slip the bonds of their creator's intent. So. Hunter writes something and then it gets out of his hands and it creates this monster or this character. But really good work doesn't, in the end, maybe belong to the people who write it. Mm. If other people make of it something else and the character grows and then... Did you, at first, when you were first getting into publishing, and I think this speaks to some of what your book talks about, um, I mentioned at the beginning, it seemed like there was a lot more focus on you than even the work and what you represented as opposed to what the work represents. And I can't think of a lot of analogs to, to, to that. I mean, the only one I can, who, who I've also interviewed on here and is a friend of mine is DBC Pierre over in the UK. Um, everything about the, the book, even though the book sold a million copies and, and won the booker and, and a bunch of prizes. But everything was about somebody, somebody's backstory that he was not trying to advertise, mm -hmm. um, but he was trying to conceal that he had a criminal past, conning people, drugs, alcohol, mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. It was the opposite of Bourdain, mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. I just want the book to be cared about. But, mm -hmm. but it, it, it made the booker prize the most talked about thing that I think the Booker Prize has ever been talked about for, which is that this guy could be nominated for it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't belong with us. Mm -hmm. It's his first book. He's 43. Mm -hmm. He has no background in writing. Mm -hmm. And other than him, I can't think of many people in your situation where it was so personal. Even though you didn't have any skeletons in your closet, it was just your background. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I bet... If I sat down and thought about it for a while, I try to think of some of those people. But yeah, I, I have never thought of it that way. I mean, certainly, people, writers, you know, the persona becomes important and people are attracted to the story. Who else is like that where they really paid attention to the person? Uh, 
got to be able to think of someone. God, I mean, Fitzgerald, be, certainly. Yeah. yeah. But he was embodying something that, I mean, Andy Warhol would be another example. But both of those guys are people from, you know, Pittsburgh and, and St. Paul, Minnesota, that mm-hmm. don't know what the place is that they become the ambassador of, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Like somebody said that of Warhol, that Warhol was aspiring to be bourgeois, but you couldn't find somebody more removed from that. So that combination is what creates what he gave us. Mm-hmm. Or Fitzgerald saying, like, I don't know anything about New York society and I'm the spokesman of it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I find that really Fitzgerald said he didn't know anything about New York society? No, he said, like, you could find any advertising guy who's been here six months will know more about it than I do. And yet I'm the one they go to to... to articulate it for them it's random yeah it's weird but I did think like in relation to Quiet Street I was trying to think of, of parallels potentially I mean Gatsby clearly is depicting his society it doesn't seem to resonate for decades after he's dead pretty much um, Capote got a lot of shit for um, Le Cote Basque I believe was his big expose of the wealthy um, radical chic. I, I saw your dad in that documentary about Tom Wolfe talking about it a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wonder what, what did you make of these works when you're seeing historically famous novels or nonfiction work doing something a little bit similar to what you were doing in? Well, some of them were really important to me and made me think I could be a writer. Less Than Zero by Brett Ellis. Sure. I thought, whoa. This is a book. This is a short book. This is a book written by somebody who was around my age. Maybe I can do something kind of like this. Huh. So, some that one just actually helped me figure out to write at all. And then others, the bonfire of the vanities, the and Dickens. You know, people who were trying to paint those things. Um, what do I make of them? They're really useful to me for this book, and I I love reading them. Mm. Did it, did it impact the way you saw yourself as being the target of some of these books? I mean, more broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the target? Yeah, I mean, I I think that they helped me see my own life more clearly. That's what I, the great, great book gives, to get to have a slightly clearer version of, of, of yourself. The book that really got me at that time was not exactly of that milieu but it was a heartbreaking work of staggering genius by dave eggers when i I read it when i was 16 or something and i thought to myself i could write this book which of course i couldn't write that book but i was the self-consciousness of it was so appealing to me as a 16 or 17 year old but that was not about privilege but it was about conveying a certain kind of time and place and privilege and yeah and he, he actually mentions this he talks about his own privilege in the footnotes of that book and Here's how he actually says in that book. Here's how much I'm being paid for this book. Hundred thousand dollars seems like a lot, but here's what I'm paying in taxes. Here's the agent. Here's this. Here's that. I hadn't remembered that, but he did no, that. That may have right. been the first book I read about that. Uh, and he was kind of way ahead of things on that because in that book he references I'm white, I'm his religion and the suburb that he's in, and then he sort of like brackets all that and says, "Here's this thing, and I thought about it all, and now I got to get into this thing," uh, and that come to think of it actually was very influential and the subsequent arc of his career also is I admire it so much that he would have looked inward so much and then and I think this happens to a lot of people who are writers over time they look inwards for their first book or two or three and then they go oh 
running out of material here, right. or I care more about this, or it becomes interesting, and then Zeitung and What is the What and all those books looking out. Right. Uh, well, no, that's a really, I, I had not made that connection. You're absolutely right. That's the first time I saw a writer listed. I remember being, oh my God, this is what people get paid. Um, but I also found that book, I remember sharing that with my dad when I found it. And, and he read it, he went out on the porch and started reading it. And when I came out to say, like, is this as good as I think it is? And he went, it is, it's excellent. But at the same time, you notice when he picks up the laundry, he talks about just like peasants were carrying the laundry home. Mm -hmm. Mm. Like, that's not somebody that's done physical work. Far out, yeah. There's a, there's, this guy's, both his parents are lawyers. Mm -hmm. And the way he's curated details in this is extremely telling. Yeah. I mean, he got like, I think a $2 million book deal, sorry, movie deal for that book. Um, and then of course he opens 826 Valencia yeah. and charity, charity, charity. Mm -hmm. um, very touchy with criticism. Mm -hmm. hmm. um, but in a way that I found fascinating, I'm not speaking about mm -hmm. it because I, I had animus towards it, but I just thought the curation of this origin is fascinating. I mean, it's a million dollar story idea, what he had, right? Like raising your little brother, but elements of inaccuracy, according to his sister, seem to cause a lot of friction in that family. And not saying it caused her suicide, but I just went, there's a lot more to this. She claimed that he enhanced how much he looked after his brother and minimized my role hmm. in looking after the family. She's also an attorney, so hmm. there's some money there hmm. where he doesn't really talk about how effective he was as an editor and getting jobs at very high-profile, high prestige places. Mm -hmm. I just went, okay, I get what the story is he wants to tell. What's the story he's uncomfortable telling mm -hmm. about this that some people around him seem to take issue with? Right. I became huh. intrigued with that. So that was one thing I wanted to ask you. This is the story you land with. Right. Um, were there versions of this story? What, what's the story you couldn't tell? In well, this? I can't tell it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But is there is there a version of this that you would feel very uncomfortable telling? Like Fitzgerald said, stories that people are unwilling to tell often make the best stories. Mm -hmm. Is there elements of that in this? Absolutely. There are elements of my life and my history and my family that are so, you know, that I wouldn't want to share. That are, of course, part of the story of how I came to understand. The book is about, partly about me learning, thinking, understanding about class. And it's impossible to take somebody's life apart. Everything is connected to political consciousness. So there are parts of my life and my family that are the business of my life and my family that contributed to my political consciousness. And I wouldn't want to write about them. Hmm. I guess my last question would just be, are you pleased so far with the way it's been received either critically or just from readers that have, you've, you've talked to or you're going to these events and this kind of thing, like has this, did this work out the way you were hoping it would? So far. It's only been out a couple weeks. Right? Yeah, it's too early to tell how it's all going to work out. I'm satisfied with the book. Somebody asked me, what's your favorite part of the publishing process? I'd never thought about it before. And I realized that my favorite part is when I finish the manuscript the first time, finish for myself, before I do all the editing and 
things. Like the moment where I think, not when it's done and everybody's had their say and I've edited it, but when I'm done with it, sort of the best that I can do solo on it. And the longer that satisfaction lasts, the better. And I feel pretty good about this book right now. So. Sorry, I don't have. I don't have cash. Sorry, I haven't either. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Has is there a similar feeling with every book that you've finished, or have they all been kind of different? Because I remember, I remember just, I remember when the Times was going to do a profile about what I was doing, and. Havana was the most researched location on earth to visit and Castro had just died mm. and it was a very flattering profile mm. and it ended up moving 1200 copies of my book about Cuba and I thought wow that's where that's where I am and that's mm. where my interaction is with the world from the, mm. the biggest place to amplify whatever the hell it is I'm doing yeah well I can tell you that so far in terms of this book I think I checked the numbers last week and it sold like uh, 1,993 copies in the first uh, four weeks, I think. Yeah. Three weeks, which they said is not dismal, but not great. So we're hoping for more. So I would like it to sell more copies. Uh, that, in terms of the reviews, it's been mostly positive reviews. The yep. New York Times gave it a bad review, which is a drag because that's the one that most people read. But I don't know if it was bad. Uh, I mean, it was. Uh, you know, Fitzgerald has a line of bad reviews. If it's really his line, a bad review should ruin your breakfast, but not your lunch. Pretty good. And I think that it's going to be cool to see what this book does over time because people, it does make people want to talk. And I think that they're going to keep talking to me about it. Hmm. This one more than other ones. Do you see yourself going back to doing something like this 10 years from now, 20 years from now, to kind of trying to assess where you're at or where you come from? I haven't thought about it. I was so thinking about other things, but it's a good idea because it's material that I'm gonna, whether I want to or not, have a kind of access to. Mm. So. Well, I, re I mean, it's funny. I hadn't even thought of that heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius because it, created a kind of labyrinth with no center for me where I what I enjoyed what I liked what made me want to talk to him as a person and I haven't um, and also what antagonized me he had thought of before I got there in a way that was un unnerving for me you, your quality doesn't seem as defensive as, as his does I just meant like yeah. you, you, you seem like an, a guy that is, is pretty open whereas he seems something different to me yeah yeah I mean I, I am pretty open in this book I mean that's that's the name of the game for this one yeah. you, I guess last thing is just if you had what would have been the impact if you had named names when you talk about some of the terrible behavior Mm -hmm. If you name names and people knew exactly who they were mm -hmm. and their co-workers would be alerted, like that kind of, I don't know if it's radical transparency, but... I was thinking about this too. The, there's a guy in the book, for example, who says when the war in Ukraine started, 
I knew it was about to start, so I bought a bunch of stock in Lockheed Martin, I think it was. It's the definition of being a war profiteer, right? But in on the right, in this country right now, people are proud of breaking the rules. Like, look at me, I can shoot someone on middle of Fifth Avenue and I can get away with it. Everything is unfair, so I'm, everything is corrupt, so I'm gonna be the most corrupt. Right. So, had I named people in that way, I think that many of them would have said, yeah, I am this way and this is the way it's gotta be because it's a zero sum game and everything else is naive. Right. Happened with the first novel I wrote. I wrote this that novel, people, teenagers behaving badly and then people who weren't in the book came up to me and said, that guy who did that bad thing in that book, that was me. Pretty cool, right? right. I said, well, that's not exactly the point of the book. But I think people would have been proud of it in some ways. And then I think some people would have been ashamed. But I think a lot of the reaction would have been. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the shame or pride. I mean, Godfather came out as a cautionary tale. It's aspirational. Wall Street comes out. It's a recruitment poster. Wolf of Wall Street, same thing. I don't know how shame motivates or animates anything positive anymore. And I don't know why that is. Or maybe it does with... I think that it can, it can, if it can lay a, put a spark in someone's head and start a chain of thinking, but direct shaming that way doesn't seem to me to make people change their behavior. Or, I mean, it makes people change their behavior because they run and hide. Right. But it doesn't make them change their behavior in a way that is necessarily constructive or additive. No. No, I think... I mean, yeah, I don't... I mean, even, even Gatsby, like, Gatsby is a dance of death when you read it now. In terms of the society it's representing, it's not a celebration of the, the 20s. It's, I mean, the ruling class is mutilating poor people. Yeah, I don't think it was ever a celebration of it. I don't think no. that's how... Yeah. But I think that the intimacy of it comes with his affection for it because he was in it, he, he knew about it, and so being close enough to it, he could represent it, and it's both its horror and what he loved about it. Right. And that was his, probably what cracked him up, too. Hey, last thing, you mentioned Hunter S. Thompson and the Woody Creek thing. That, that was probably the one location in the U.S. I wanted to visit. What was another... I don't know, memorable interaction you had with a writer that everybody kind of would like to have that access to. Mm -hmm. I don't know, was there positive or negative? Or maybe. Richard Price, great writer, good friend. My dad's and my family's and his kids are friends. When I was like too young to be reading Moby Dick, I said, oh, I'm reading Moby Dick. And he said, basically, you're too young to be reading Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's not special to him as a writer, except that he knew that to say it. I don't know. I mean, they're like hunter stories that I could tell you or like try to think of stories that have to do with Richard and his persona as a writer of crime fiction. And there's truth to all these things. But... My experience of them and the, like the real privilege of it was knowing them as people who, when they didn't have their personas on, and they yeah. just were like everybody else mm. in that, that way. Yeah. 
I mean, you would have known Hunter, what, in the late 80s, early 90s kind of thing? Is that when you would see him as a little kid? <coughs> yeah, as a kid. I mean, I really only went to, really only remember clearly hanging out at Woody Creek this one time. And what he did was sat me at the, he had this countertop where he would sit in the kitchen. People would come and hang out. And he had all this stuff on that kitchen counter. Drugs and guns and God knows what, firecrackers and this hammer that he would hit and there'd be the sound of glass breaking and the fridge was behind him and the big TV would be up and he'd be watching sports. And it was a really fun, exciting place to be for a kid. And I was a little bit like nervous and he could tell and I was sitting there at the on a stool at the counter and he was like, you sit here. And he sat me right down in the middle of all of this, people coming and going. And I... And he said, you got to carve your name into this kitchen counter. So he like put this knife and he had a lot of fun knives and weapons and stuff around. Carve your initials into this thing. I was like eight or nine years old. And I was like, oh, I'm doing something wrong. But he was like, you know, and then I carved my initials into it. Yeah. And the first time I met him, I remember this. First time I remember meeting him, because I met him as a baby. Kind of joking, kind of not. He was like, kid, kid, want a cigarette? Lean in and pack his pass at Dunhill's. But I don't know I didn't have one. Mm. Stuff like that. I don't like mementos, but sometimes, I mean, if you had that cigarette, it could have been fun. Yeah, I didn't start smoking for a while thereafter. No. Yeah. But I mean, I have a couple. Have you got mementos from some writers you admire? Not, not, not writers. I mean, um, when I interviewed Teofilo Stevenson, like the Cuban Muhammad Ali, he tried to he tried to shake me down and rip me off and I was really scared and nervous I'm in his house it's completely illegal to be there and um, he left the room and I knew he was setting up another trick for me during this because he didn't want to be interviewed he knew he knew the way he'd been used by Castro to be a symbol of everything that worked that he could turn down millions of dollars as an alcoholic who was chain smoking would be a symbol of something else you can't have it both ways so when he left, I noticed there was a pack of dominoes like sprawled out and I stole one of his dominoes, which I have to this day. And so he died, I think, a few years later. But I just have that as a little That's a talisman. Yeah. A little one, little one. Or when J.D. Salinger was alive, I stole one of his um, no trespassing signs. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so where, where did he live? Cornish, huh? Cornish, New Hampshire. And I, I didn't meet him. Mm but within two minutes of being outside of his place, because somebody told me where it was, uh, in, in the town, I mean, there's nothing in the town. Mm -hmm. There's a general store and there's like a little post office that I knew he didn't use. And then there's all these back roads. And somebody just said, you know, it's Lang Road, it's over here. And I got there and within two minutes of being in front of his mailbox, a van pulled up, I said, do you know where you are? I said, I think so. Well, what are you doing here? So I'm going to take a photograph of that mailbox. Like, Do you know who it belongs to? I, I think so. Like, well, he doesn't appreciate it. I said, okay, I'm on, I'm on public, public road. I don't intend to disturb him. And he went, well, eyes are on you. Your license plate has been taken down. So just so you know, you're being watched. Wow. And that was two minutes. In a town of 200 people. He or must have gotten so many weird threats and calls over the I'm years. I'm sure, and yeah. I didn't want to be that. Yeah, yeah. I, I just was like, you're, you know, I think it was 2006, so he was eight, 87 years old. Uh -huh. And I just thought, how do you go from 
it's so antithetical to what the society is that he's not on Oprah and he's not catching the rise and being played by Leonardo DiCaprio, et cetera, et cetera. And this, I mean, you're a, a more muted version of this extremity, but I mean, you know, you, you do do interviews occasionally. You, you are, you know, your picture's in, in some of these interviews that you're giving, but you, I'm sure you could do a lot more than you do. Maybe I'm mistaken in that assumption. You could have a fucking talk show or something on TV or something. Well, I, I don't know if I could have a talk show. you might just, have been able to if yes. you wanted to pursue that course. Right. And yeah. You, yeah, talk show's not for me. No, no, no. I, but you know what I mean. Like, if, if you were... If you had the attitude of, like, a Tucker Carlson in terms of amplifying your profile to the maximum amount, that is clearly not the track that you went on with success at 18. Mm. It could have been if this was all just a means to that end, but it doesn't, you know, it, it seems like the work is the end for you. Well, I sure want the work to be amplified, so right. they're connected. But yeah, that, that was not, didn't occur to me to do it at 18. Yeah, that's enough for your time. Thanks so much, man. I Thank you. It. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcone Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.